0: so I um like i I had mentioned uh, before the break, I just came back from teaching a a retreat almost a week long um, at Vallecitos Mountain Retreat Center in New Mexico. How many of you have been to this retreat center? I know someone who was there, and then anyone else been there This is I think one of the best retreat centers I've ever sat at or taught at. And this is the third time I've been there. And it's an always, I just feel honored each time I get invited to teach at this place. And one of the reasons is that, um, what makes it so extraordinary is it's like this retreat center has been plopped down into this pristine, wild wilderness of New Mexico. Uh, It's up in the mountains. Um, you can't Google map it. (laughs) Uh, it's, um, there's a river that goes through it and these, uh, it's incredible forest and meadows. There's wild horses that, um, uh, inhabit the area. I haven't seen them yet. It's hard to catch them. Not catch them, but see them. Um yeah then just uh um there's a different feel and of course a lot of the retreat centers that are available are in some in beautiful places and and a lot of them are in nature. We of course love our urban centers too, but there's something about doing this practice in in nature and the rawness of nature. And I want to speak to that a little bit and how this can be the way for, for us as practitioners or one of the ways that we can come into contact with our value and our love for nature and for this planet and what it does for us, not just for our survival, but also just for our, our awakening, that it is necessary and that to be connected fully with ourselves and to fully develop ourselves uh, is not excluding this connection with life in all of its forms, including the natural world. On this land uh, at Vallecitos, uh there's a, a tree called, they call it the Buddha tree. And it's between 700 and 800 years old. It's a ponderosa pine. It's huge. It's enormous. It's like when you go see the old growth redwood trees here on the west coast. Those giant ones that you you and a loved one couldn't put your arms all the way around it smells like vanilla ponderosa pines especially when it's just rained you put your face right up to it and it has this beautiful smell and this one in particular looks like it's seen a lot or it's been witness to a lot Uh, just the way it gnarls all the way to the top and like I said, this is the third time I've been to this place, and I spend a lot of time with this tree whenever I'm there. And this last time, all I wanted to do is just put my belly uh, on this the, the base of this tree. And um, I don't know if that makes me a tree hugger <laughs> now. Um, and if so, I proudly am. <laughs> And I just, uh, I spent um, almost every day that I was there, had a moment to lean into this tree and just really be with this tree. And even now thinking about it, it makes me a little emotional. And being there, um, it was emotional. And I don't fully know why I don't have words for that feeling that arises for me in those moments, but I do know that it's caused by uh, somehow connecting with this incredible ancient wild nature is somehow allowing me to connect with my own uh, wild nature, taking away whatever it is in our minds that we've created as separate, and really being with whatever the truths are that are available um, when that separation is gone. And I think we can find that um, in any any natural setting. I think there's there's some doorway that can be open if we're really paying attention. And I think this was known by the Buddha. You know, his first instruction to most practitioners was to go to the jungle or go to the forest and sit down at the foot of a tree and establish mindfulness. There's something about that contact. There's something about um, just being with nature in this simple way that brings us into something so deep, something so known, and the Dharma does this for us too. We can connect into this uh, in a in a space like this when we're practicing and we're really paying attention. When all of those boundaries start to get thinner, all the ways that we um, maybe have um, created our sense of self or created some kind of otherness in our life that starts to Uh, fizzle a little bit. So we don't necessarily have to be at the foot of a tree. The Dharma has this way of unfolding in this way, but there can be something very expedient when we are in the lap of wild nature. And this was part of the Buddha's instruction for his uh, followers, In now more modern times, um, in the Thai forest tradition, you know, this this tradition of being in the forest and practicing in the forest is very much alive and valued. And there's a there's been a more modern tradition because their forests have been decimated um, as well, of actually ordaining trees to save them. So Buddhist monks going out and ordaining these trees so they won't be cut down. And one of these monks now lives in Northern California. His name is Ajahn Pasano, and he is the abbot of Abayagiri Monastery. And a while back, he was uh, in a conversation that was documented and written up in Inquiring Mind with Julia Butterfly Hill, who also, in her own way, ordained uh, an old-growth uh, tree and lived in it. I'm sure many of you have heard of her and um, maybe have been inspired by her story, lived in this tree and went through her own personal transformation as well as inspiring a whole movement um, against clear-cutting and the practices of clear-cutting. So in this conversation, I'm, I'll i actually share a couple of quotes from this through the talk. But I'll start with Ajahn Pasano. And he says, kind of somewhere midway in their conversation, he says, It occurs to me as I'm listening that the Thai word for nature is dhammachat, which could be roughly translated as the birthplace of nature. Embedded in the language is the idea that nature is where we can see the Dharma, both in terms of how the teachings display themselves in the world, as well as in the natural truths the Buddha pointed to. In Buddhism, we look at the cycle of nature, that the cycles of nature that are outside of ourselves, but also inside. That's what meditation practice is all about, looking at how we experience our own nature, the way we live and breathe, experience emotion, create suffering, or live in harmony. We can only really understand this within ourselves. That's why your theme of love is so important, Julia. So now he's talking to Julia Butterfly Hill directly. Um, He says when we're in conflict with something, we're pushing it away and making it other. It's only when we really, when we rely on love or have a very caring attitude that we bring the outside into ourselves. Only then do we understand it. Do we see the truth? So this connection with this lineage, with this practice, and with uh, the natural world, uh, they're not separate. And in fact, this practice, it may be necessary to have some connection uh, to this natural world. There's so much that it teaches us It teaches us about the fundamentals of of Buddhism around change, that everything's in flux, everything changes so rapidly that we can barely track it. We know this when we sit next to a stream and we're just watching the water and suddenly it dawns on us moment to moment just how much is changing just in that water. And then suddenly we realize that our witnessing of that water changing rapidly is also a change in us. We can see what it is that, um, we can see something like that and then actually turn it back on ourselves and see our own nature reflected in that truth. We learn that it's not personal, that life is hard, that yes, life has dukkha, maybe lots of dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali word for suffering. It's the first noble truth of the Buddha that yes, in life there is suffering. And we learn more and more that uh, yes, we create a lot of our suffering, and that which we aren't creating you know, these bodies that are falling apart, they don't work the way we always want them to. These minds are the same way um, that we get sick, that the people we love get sick, that the people we love um pass away, that we die eventually. These are things we can have a lot of anger about or want to push away or not deal with, but it's also natural. That all of this is just part of life. There isn't something personal about it. And nature can teach us this that we as human beings were not that significant in the scheme of the universe. We can see that when we lay back on our backs and look up into the stars and just get this glimpse of the universe and see or feel into just how small we really are in the net of life. Or just looking down at a plot of dirt and all the things, all the bugs and the um, different activity that might be going on in this small section of earth. And even using our imaginations to think of it on a molecular level, just how uh how much we build ourselves up, maybe as the most important species. Uh, But maybe we're just really a small cog in this wheel, and we can feel that humility, be humbled by nature and its real power. Our minds are part of nature. These confused... (laughs) Sometimes unhappy, sometimes joyful, sometimes clear, sometimes not. Minds, it's part of nature. If you've ever sat and really hated the way your mind is, if you've ever sat and hated the way your mind is and then go sit out in nature and allow it to reflect back to you just how human you are, how natural all of this really is, that it's not personal, it's changing all the time. It's not permanent. What a beautiful teaching, An important, necessary teaching. These bodies, our hearts, it's all part of nature. But we think of ourselves as separate. Oftentimes we think of ourselves there's nature and the natural world. And then there's us. There's this othering that we do. And this is something we've learned. This isn't something we inherently are born to think. This is learned cognitive behavior. You know, toddlers don't believe this. Young kids, unless they've been already schooled to think otherwise, they don't feel that. But somewhere along the line, we create this otherness. This is back to that interview with um, Ajahn Pasano and Butterf- uh, Julia Butterfly Hill. And this is her speaking now. She says that I'm committed to raising awareness about what I call uh, disposability consciousness. I went up in the tree with this disposability consciousness, and I came down without it. Now I see forests in every paper cup, every paper plate, every paper napkin, every paper bag, in every plastic cup and plastic lid and plastic bag, I see the oil fields of Ecuador that I've walked through and the people whom I've worked with in Africa. I now see the earth being destroyed by our Uh, disposability, consciousness. The separateness that we've created, or not that we actually haven't created, but that we've learned, that we've accepted deeply, it's what gets in the way. This perspective alone of what gets in the way when we purchase a bottled water and think it's just one bottled water. Or when we are buying our groceries and we load up with lots of organic stuff maybe, maybe lots of healthy things, but it's all wrapped in plastic. And we don't necessarily think about it because we brought our cloth bags to put it in. And this isn't to put anyone down. I'm in this group. (laughs) I can put myself in this category we don't see the connections between you know, how we're living in these ways that are just so socially normed as actually a way of causing harm. I'm always so, uh, I don't know what the word is, shocked, I think is actually more accurate, moved. Um, when I meet people who, uh, are operating in a very different way and actually feel that connection, are pained when they, um, you know, pain to the point where they couldn't buy that, that plastic cup or that bottled water. It caused them pain. There's no disconnect there. I can't say that I'm there, to be really honest. I am when I, when I really stop and try to connect. I'm trying to find ways to diminish the amount of, um, plastics and unnecessary, um, paper product and I'm starting to try and get creative about it. My family and I were, um, seeing it as a challenge when we go in the grocery store of how much plastic we don't get. With our food and with our products, and there's a lot of different ways to approach this, but I think this is core: the separation, not feeling the pain uh, that it that is actually causing. In this practice, if you're if you're walking the Buddhist pra- the Buddhist path, uh, we take precepts. We we take a, a moral code that is uh, the foundation of the rest of the practice. And the first code is to really not cause harm or not to kill living beings. This planet is pulsating with life. And yet, as a Buddhist, am I really connecting to that truth? That these actions have consequences. That my child, who's three right now, will be an inheritor of that consequence. That I'll see this, the consequences in my lifetime. Are we connected to this truth? Joanna Macy, who's, um, a local teacher, Ecologist, Buddhist, in her own respect, um, she leads uh, this work that she calls the work that reconnects. That's very much related to this. How do we reconnect to these truths? And she has this spiral that she uses that has four steps although you continue to deepen them because it is in the structure of a spiral, you keep revisiting each of these steps and going further. And the first one is gratitude. To get in touch with your gratitude for this earth, for nature, for all that it provides you. And I thought it might be nice to um, just take a moment and invite you to go inside You can close your eyes if that feels comfortable. And see where your mind goes with this. Bringing in this appreciation for the natural world. Your mind might go generic at first. See if you can make it Very specific. What do you love about this earth? About nature, animals, the critters, the fish
1: the birds
0: What about the people also part of nature Who do you adore in your life who is really important you want them to to thrive and be healthy Drink clean water, breathe clean air. And if your heart starts to ache, that's okay. Allow the ache to be there, or the sadness to be there. But don't forget the gratitude see if you can shine your attention on that feeling of of gratitude of deep thanks breathe in deeply Let that gratitude permeate, that feeling of ease and wholeness. Allow it to fill your body. Let it be as big as it wants to be. Let yourself feel nourished by it. You're welcome to stay with that feeling if you'd like. I'll continue to speak. It's this love and this gratitude for this place, this earth. This is where we begin. Not what it's lacking, but what its offering, its abundance is where we have to start. And maybe we start there because it gives us some balance, gives us some foundation to then move into the next part of this process that Joanna Macy calls uh, the work that reconnects. The next piece is honoring our pain to turn towards the difficult. This is what we do as practitioners. In our meditations, we're turning towards whatever is arising, including that which is uncomfortable or painful. the places that maybe we wish we didn't have to deal with. Our practice with gentleness, with real care, it asks us to turn towards this part of our being, this part of our minds, our hearts, and to know it, to know it deeply. And in terms of our relationship with the global climate crisis, we have to come into contact with this. We have to come into the pain of this. We have to spend time there. We have to do this so we can feel angry. We have to feel the anger that is there. And from that place of anger, to feel the power of agency, of needing to do something, that it's time to do something and maybe do something um, more brave and courageous than we would have before. And for some, and maybe for all of us at points, this is overwhelming. The idea isn't to get stuck in that overwhelm, but the overwhelm in some ways is okay. That burn is okay. In some ways, we should be a little overwhelmed. If we're underwhelmed, we're not paying attention enough. It should hurt. This is dukkha. And we're called to come in full contact with that. Doing so with wisdom. Maybe with some forgiveness. Directed at ourself. Directed at others. Fierce compassion. Holding this anger and these strong emotions with this wisdom and fierce compassion is necessary. Otherwise, it becomes about ourself. We go into selfing. We go into um, a despair that maybe on the outside looks like it's about, you know, the destruction of the earth and the world and the uncertainty of those we love. But if you really look closely, it has more to do with ourself. We don't want to get stuck there. We have to transform this anger. We have to transform our numbness into this love and deep, fierce compassion and action. We have to mobilize and not become averse. This seems like a contradictory statement in a way because I think so much of what we see or maybe what we've done in this kind of action when there's this kind of anger, uh, the anger becomes so aversive. Julia talks about this, so I'll say more. I'm gonna quote her more from that article. Is it Julia Butterfly Hill? She says, When I came when I climbed up in that tree, I was new to activism, but I soon realized that we had become so good at defining what we were against, that what we were against was beginning to define us. I saw the problem in meetings where activists were clear-cutting each other with their words and their anger. As people were talking, I could literally hear the chainsaws in their words cutting each other apart. I saw that the peace rallies had become anti-war rallies, places where I couldn't even walk up close to the rally because of the way people were speaking through the microphone. It sounded like they were dropping bombs. This all became clear to me about halfway through my time in the tree, when I was experiencing a lot of pain and really felt like I was falling apart. That's when I went deeper and realized I had climbed up the tree, not because I was angry at corporations and governments, although I was angry at them, but because I loved the forest, and I loved the planet, and I loved the sacred life that we're all a part of. And so I began to approach all of these issues from that place of love. When we are committed to approaching issues with the perspective of what we want, rather than what everyone else is doing wrong, it's important to look into our own daily practice to see all the ways we are out of integrity with the world we want to live in. So this radical love that we can birth out of that sadness, out of that anger, um, is possible and necessary. I think because it is a spiral uh, that Joanna maps out, um, it's very clever, this idea that even as we go through these transformations, we come back. We end up needing to uh, revisit our gratitude, revisit the pain, maybe over and over again, go through the transformation. She calls the transformation seeing through new eyes. And then from there, going forth if it's from that place we actually make huge change i think i'll i think i'll stop there because i want to hear from you and i want to honor uh leaving a little early this evening. But I'd like to hear what your thoughts are, what the struggles are. Of course, this isn't a complete talk. There's so much more to explore and be said. Um, But maybe it's just a nice perspective on what we're doing with all of this. Um, (laughs) Thank you.
2: Hi, well, that, that, the thing from Julia was wonderful. And, I mean, I've been involved in, uh, the, you know, the whole climate, uh, climate crisis process. And I'm having a lot of trouble
0: being able to do it in a mindful and non-attached way. Because, you know, once you get involved with things, you know, it become you get dragged down to the you know the very political level and the the you know the things that the way people interact and it's you know it really makes me angry and i'm not quite sure how to deal with that you know how, how can one be involved and still not be sucked into the whole process that's that's the problem i'm having with with the the work that i'm doing yeah yeah i don't think it's a simple solution. (laughs) I think that, you know, we're communal beings and we're influenced heavy by those that we're with. And so it might be noticing that one, who are you aligning with? How are they responding to this? Is it supportive of this kind of approach? And yeah, yeah. And then it might be going through the practice and really coming to an understanding or grounding in the understanding that you aren't in that level, at that level of control. That people are going to have different opinions. They're going to do certain things and that each of us individually, we aren't in that level of control. And that's true for just about everything. I think sometimes um, that's where that attachment piece can be seen as we're wanting a particular outcome or we want things to go a particular way and we get so solidified in that that our flexibility, our creativity of finding solutions um, gets either stuck and we get angry because our way didn't go well or it just gets kind of worn down because maybe over and over and over again we've seen that happen. And so we get really tired and we lose our focus and our inspiration. And so maybe that's the place to bring your attention. is that place of control for yourself. And just see how you're relating to that and attaching to that that idea idea, I wonder if that would soften things um, or maybe open things up for you a little bit. But it's hard to say. It's probably complex and there's probably a lot going on with that. Is that helpful? Okay. How about over here? Thank you. Uh, last week I was sitting at a retreat and we talked about this very issue and I wanted to just share something that I think could be
2: useful um, to whoever might find it. So um, it can be used like a mantra and basically we just, the it, it, came, it went like this. Um, I can't do everything, but
0: I also can't do nothing. So what will I do? And you might not have the answer to that right now. But I think sitting with that and asking it and repeating it will lead to what's
2: really deep down inside of us and in our hearts and in our capacity and beyond to do. So I wanted to offer that.
0: Thank you.
1: Um, I was struck by how beautifully you spoke about the experience you had in the wilderness. And I was wondering, um, I was just reading some words from Martin Luther King recently and he was talking about how he thought nonviolent that st- activism from a place of love not stopping not like again something but for love yeah. um was often misinterpreted as being passive towards harm yeah and he made this real point around no it's a very active stance and i was curious from your experience in the wilderness when you described the tree i experienced like the the metaphor of mother earth and the trees, a very receptive, loving, like grow big kind of energy, like hold it all kind of energy, which can feel non-active to me. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if, if you have a, a perspective in the wilderness on the, the fierceness, how you, how you've experienced that in nature as well, how there's maybe some balance. I've been thinking about that, the fierce energy in nature and what I'm curious how you, if you experience any of that in your.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh that's, a, that's an interesting question. I guess, um, I mean, we can romanticize nature as being a certain thing, butterflies and, you know, pretty vistas and things like that. But I think if you're really in it, if you were to survive in it, it's very raw and it asks for a capacity within whoever it is that's surviving it uh, that maybe goes beyond what we're used to with our creature comforts. And so maybe some of what we can contact is just our own capacity to hold um, more than we think we can. That our hearts are able more than maybe we think, and that perhaps it's just fear that's preventing us from seeing that, that it's already holding at a certain capacity, but perhaps we're blinded to that because of fear of what would happen if we couldn't hold it. But we already are. We're already holding so much I know that feeling of feeling like I just can't take another heart shift. Uh, I can't, you know, hold another devastating something. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. But that's just fear. Because of course I can. And I can see beyond it too if we become so focused on that side and miss what is so beautiful about the rawness and the grittiness of let's say nature but also seeing it reflect our own raw gritty ability as human beings to fight and to do what's necessary and how beautiful that is there's something so beautiful about that it's what we love about wild nature when we look out and see it you know it's not a park it's not manicured neither are we internally we have that facade maybe that we've put up but we're not internally and it's beautiful i don't know if that answers your question (laughs) but that's what comes to mind yeah Okay, maybe one more.
2: I have a question uh, that I've heard it's in the context that I live out in the suburbs and a lot of our children last fall were sent home from school because of the air. Mm-hmm. And the people who are new to activism um they they think it's already done. They think there's no, there's nothing we could do. It's too late. I hear that a lot. And I have thought of it in terms of the practice of the what-ifs. You can choose with your mind to say, well, what if? It just keeps on and that fear will grow. And I was wondering what the Dharma's response is to the fact that we do at this point live with such privilege and I grew up in the third world, for me, it's it's very difficult for me to live with the people in the suburbs who feel that as they drink clean water and feed their children three round meals a day, their response is that it's too late, and I'm wondering what the Dharma could offer me and my contemplations and my response to them.
0: I think that the more we get in touch with our own privilege and we start to see it for what it really is, the more that we don't allow it to be a way to bypass that connection that I talked about at the beginning. I feel like the more we understand our own the more we have words and language in a way to meet people in their confusion and be in the process with them. We're all in this process of discovering these more shadow sides of our psyche that blind us because we don't know what we don't know. And that is the... um One of the um, illusions of privilege is we don't have to see certain things. We don't know what we don't know. So the more that we can begin to see and understand that for ourselves, the more we can meet people in their own confusion and delusion and maybe help guide their awareness. But we can't do it unless we do the work first ourselves. So I would... I start with that. But there's two parts of your question, and the other is this feeling of of there's nothing more to be done. And I think that itself is its own delusion. And whether we have great pri- privileges or not, I think that there's so much fear and... um information coming at us, it does seem like that's it. Like there's nothing more to be done. I think a lot of people are feeling that. And I don't think it's true. (laughs) It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. But we have to be kind of radical about it at this point as far as what are we going to do. We all have to do. We can't just lean back and say, well, that's it. Or someone else is going to do it for us, have this assumption that someone will figure it out or it'll work itself out. None of us have that privilege anymore. So, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for... um, Your attention this evening and for your comments and your questions, I'll end with a dedication of merit. And the dedication of merit is a, is a time where we acknowledge the wholesomeness of coming together and sitting in, sitting together, cultivating this practice together, cultivating these hearts and minds. We could have been doing many other things, but this is what you chose this evening. And it has a wholesome ripple effect. I think of it as having this ripple effect that affects not just ourselves. We may come here for ourselves, but it's never about just ourselves. When we are freeing and opening our minds and hearts, it affects the people in our lives, our loved ones, the people we work with, the people we interact with in our communities. And then I think it has ripple effects that go out into the world, even beyond that in ways that we don't even understand. And so in that spirit, we dedicate the merit of this evening to all beings everywhere. And in particular, these beings who are on your hearts and minds this evening Remembering, is it Boston Johnny, Mitch, Mac, and Alan Toussaint? Thank you. Tukulwa Apara? Is that correct? Who is in the process of healing? And this one says, for mom, who has cancer. And then to anyone not named, but you've been thinking about them, you can bring them to mind, folding them into our dedication. May all beings be happy and content. May all beings be healthy in their minds and in their body may all beings be safe from inner and outer harm may all beings be free may we all be free Thank you for your attention. Have a good night.